We're going to begin this morning in the Gospel of John. Uh, this morning we will probably spend a lot less time in John than you might have anticipated next week. We'll actually start out in John chapter 1. We'll do a little bit in John today, but just um, kind of looking at an introduction to the Gospel and to the human author, to John. Leon Morris, who was a New Testament scholar who spent many years studying, thinking about, writing about the Gospel of John, said, it's like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. It's a good description. It's apt of both its simplicity and its depth. The Gospel of John is the book that is perhaps of all of the books in the Bible, the one that is most often given to people who are trying to understand the Christian faith, trying to understand who Jesus Christ is often handed out to them to read, to get a sense for who Jesus is. Some of its verses are amongst the most recognized in the Bible. You've got a head start on that in the, uh, the Bible memory that we're doing with John 3.16. Um, and, and all of those things that come back to recollection from the Gospel of John about the life of Christ. And yet it is a profound book. One commentator called it the most amazing book ever written to give us the simplicity of John 3.16 and yet the depth of theology that deals with the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of God and salvation, and lots of interesting things that help edify us as believers in Jesus Christ. Among the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is very much unique. B.F. Westcott, who was a 19th century scholar, did some comparisons of the, the four um, Gospels and said that 92% of what we find in John is not found in the other Gospels. Uh, that it is just unique in terms of its content. Westcott said, if all we had were the other three Gospels, we might think that the ministry of Jesus was completed within a year, happened nearly all in Galilee, and then culminated in Christ's final trip to Jerusalem. John records for us three Passovers, and so we know a ministry now of close to, to three years, confirming that, that Jesus' ministry was longer than the other Gospels might lead us to think. And it also reports to us one of the most profound miracles in all of Jesus' ministry that the other Gospels don't include, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead, only recorded in John. So it is a unique book used by God in countless ways and times to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We'll start this morning in John 20, if you want to turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, John chapter 20. There are some discussions when you read the different commentaries about the purpose of John. Why did he write this? And there's, there's some who offer various conjecture. It's really not necessary. John was kind enough to tell us why he wrote it here in John chapter 20 in verse 30. John 20 verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Read those two verses, and John's purpose is pretty well stated, pretty clear. It is a book that is going to talk to us about signs, as he says there in verse 30. Jesus did many others, but these now are written. Seventeen times in the Gospel of John, he talks about signs, Miracles, beginning back in John chapter 2 and the, the marriage and the, the marriage feast and the turning of water into wine, which is recorded there in John as the first of his signs. Throughout John's gospel, these powerful signs, these miracles are, are with a purpose. They are not meant to just intrigue us, to cause us to, to have some wonderment about Jesus. 
They are meant to chiefly answer the question of who is this Jesus? These signs are recorded. This biography is given by John so that we wouldn't be left without any question about the identity of Jesus. His aim is to show how these miracles over and over again affirm something very specific, and that is Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one anticipated in the Old Testament as being sent from God to save his people, the one that the Jews had come to expect as coming from amongst their own who would be a redeemer and a savior. And John wants us to understand that these are uniquely powerful miracles that could not be attributed to some sort of magic or trickery. These are signs that he is God, that this is indeed the Son of God, and that by believing this, you might have life. And that is the urgency of that purpose statement when he says there at the end of verse 31, by believing you may have life in his name, understanding who Jesus is, and believing Jesus is who he says he is, John says is a matter of life and death. Because it is through believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, that we have life. Life is found in his name, and there is no hope for eternal life apart from him. And that is something Jesus will make clear throughout his ministry as John records it. And so thus the, the theme that we're using for this sermon series, Signs of Life, John is giving to us signs designed to spur belief that would lead then to life lead to eternal life. So John's purpose is largely evangelistic, to say to unbelievers, here is who Jesus Christ is, but it is also very much for we as the church to say, this is so that you may better proclaim who Jesus Christ is, so that you may be equipped to share with others who it is that you believe in, what you believe about him. And there's also edification as well in just some of the teaching about the Holy Spirit and that the last half of John, really as he's turning his face toward the cross, is to prepare the disciples and by extension us for the ministry that lies ahead, for his abiding presence with us through his Spirit. I want to talk largely really this morning about this human author, John. The, the book is given to us by divine inspiration, so it is fully God's word. He uses human instruments uh, to, to bring that word, to communicate that word, and so John is the human author. The interesting thing about the Gospel of John is he is, John is not mentioned in the book. There is no reference to John in there. The only John that is named in the Gospel of John is John the baptizer, the one who is known for baptizing people out at the Jordan. John himself is not named here, uh, and, and yet he is named all throughout the other Gospels. Uh, that really was not a question for the church throughout its 1,800 years of history, it had believed steadfastly that John wrote this book that was held almost unanimously until some of the German critics and scholarship of the 1800s began to try to dissect and take apart some of the, uh, of the scriptures. And one of the things they did is attack the Gospel of John and say, well, now this was actually a much later writing, maybe middle or late second century, written by some who were trying to make it look like Jesus is both God and man. Obviously, you're looking to undermine the basic truth of who the identity of Jesus is that, that John teaches. So at the heart of this debate is, is this indeed a reliable eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ as given to us by God through John, or is it written much later by a pretender with an agenda? 
So first, how do we get to John as the human author? If you're still there at the last part of John, John chapter 21, verse 24 is where he gives his explicit statement of authorship. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This disciple that he's referring to is the disciple mentioned in verse 20 just previous. If you look at John 21, 20, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus is appearing to some of the disciples. And John 21, 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So here's the book's clearest statement, clearest affirmation on human authorship, that this disciple who wrote these things is the disciple who was with Peter meeting with Jesus after the resurrection, and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was with Jesus at what we would refer to as the Last Supper, as that meal on the night before Jesus was crucified. That disciple whom Jesus loved title is an interesting one. We'll, we'll spend some time in that as we go on through this. Uh, but, but some other things we see in the Gospel of John about the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's John 13, 23, where he specifies on that night before Jesus' crucifixion. He says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Then in John 19, Jesus is dying on the cross, and verse 26 says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so Jesus, as he is dying on the cross, entrusts the care of Mary to this particular disciple whom Jesus loved as he describes it here. There's also a mention in chapter 20 as they are going to the tomb of Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved going together to the tomb when they had heard that his body was not there. So the author then we know is present at the Last Supper, is often connected with Peter in terms of ministry events, in terms of some of the chronology. We know from John 21 Two, because of the, the, the fact that John 21 later on separates Peter and this disciple. John 21, 2 names a number of the other disciples who were there. And so we can start by process of elimination to, to narrow that list down and, and put out the names of Philip and Nathaniel and Thomas. And no doubt we can put away the name of Judas who betrayed Jesus. One of the ones that we're left with then, based on the beginning of chapter 21, who was there, was James, who was John's brother. The reason that we don't believe that James, the brother of John, wrote this is because he is one of the first martyrs in the early church. The book of Acts in Acts chapter 12 records the death of James. Uh, James was not around long enough to live out what was at least sort of the rumor that, that is alluded to here in John 21 about this disciple whom Jesus loved. If you look in John 21 verse 21, we read verse 20 before, so here's Peter and here's this disciple with Jesus, verse 21 of John 21 says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What's his future? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So we've Pretty well narrowed the list down at this point. 
to this particular disciple. That really takes James out of the question. Since James becomes one of the first martyrs in the church, there certainly wouldn't have been an ongoing discussion about this guy could possibly be one who would live forever. Um, James did not live that out. So we've got a disciple who is often with Peter. John fits this almost completely. In fact, if you look through the first four chapters of the book of Acts, where you see Peter, you often see John. The two are ministering together side by side as they appear to be here. In addition, the fact that John is not named in this book should be a compelling argument in and of itself. If you were going to try to forge something and get credibility for it by knowing that you had no credibility in of yourself and so you were going to pose as someone else, wouldn't you somewhere in the course of that book try to identify that, that, that someone else and try to use their name? Uh, John's name in the other three Gospels shows up 20 times, so it's not like it's some kind of secret name or name that nobody wants to talk about. It just doesn't show up here. And so the absence of his name from this book is peculiar unless it's fully his desire to remain not the focus of attention, to, to focus on a particular attribute that he wants you to see, but to not make his name be something that distracts. One other sort of side note from uh, just, just from history and from archaeology. There was a, a small fragment uh, about a three-inch square piece of papyrus that was found back in the 1930s with documents, papyri that had come from Egypt. And within that one was some lines from John chapter 18, the oldest um, extant living document that we have any piece of the New Testament as they dated it somewhere around the year 130. That in and of itself helped shoot down a lot of the 1800s critics who had come out before and said, oh, that, that's from like mid to late second century and it was forged. What you have to argue at that point is that not only was this written, but it was copied repeatedly and then dispersed all throughout so that fragments of it would still be found. And it's believed John wrote this as we know enough about his life from Ephesus. And so all of that sort of adds to the case that this was a book that was written late in the first century, later in the first century, much as church history is held, and it was written by the apostle John from his own eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Jesus was crucified around the year 30. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written around 50, 60-ish A.D., and John's gospel comes sometime after that, which explains why so much of John's gospel then does differ from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because he has access to read their records, their gospels, and is able to then build on that and add in things that had not been reported. So we're going to begin our run through all of the Gospels this morning. We're going to keep you turning pages or scrolling as it may be. Matthew chapter 4, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 4. Don't need to keep your finger in John 20 um, at the moment, but Matthew chapter 4. I want us to think about John. I want us to think about this title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why four or five times in the Gospel, instead of saying his name, instead of identifying himself, does he focus on that? And so first, let's get to know John a little bit better. Matthew 4, verse 17, tells us that Jesus has now begun a preaching ministry, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Mark's gospel also adds, just so that we understand, that James and John did not sort of leave their father in the lurch, that there were hired servants there as well to carry on the work. But it also emphasizes the the fascinating element of this, and that is Jesus calls and they respond. There is an immediacy to their, their response. Now, they have heard Jesus preaching in their region. They have heard about Jesus, no doubt, from some of the accounts. And so it's not like he's entirely unfamiliar, but he's also not extraordinarily well-known either. And he calls them to a whole new way of life. You who have spent your life fishing will now be fishing for men. What does that mean? This is really a dramatic moment if, if you're John at this point to, you and I could put our, 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 ourselves in his shoes at that moment and probably think of a half a dozen good excuses why we should not drop our nets and follow Jesus. I mean, that, that's just, it's almost irrational. I'm here, I've got this job, it's a family business, we, we don't necessarily have enough hands, we have to train people, I'm not sure I can just leave this, where are we going? <laughs> what am I going to be fishing for? Men have... You know, you could just imagine all of the questions and the skepticism at that point. And yet they followed Jesus apparently without excuse or delay. Turn now to Luke chapter 5. This, this calling now sort of advances to a, a sort of another level in Luke 5. The calling in Matthew 4 was Jesus' first calling. They left their nets and they followed Jesus through Capernaum, through the northern region, through the area of Galilee. Uh, take a look at the map there just a second. Um, just to kind of get a little bit of the understanding, Sea of Galilee is right there. Jerusalem is down over here. Jesus is ministering up in this area. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. And so he's largely in towns and synagogues around here. We'll see later where Samaria fits in as kind of the middle point in their travels. But for now, it's, it's largely there. It's, it's largely in a place where they're still in their comfort zone, they're still near their work. They're still near their families. They're in t- coastal towns, and, and, and they can watch Jesus and learn more about Jesus and still engage in the fishing in order to supply for their own needs, which appears to be what they're doing at least, at, at least part of this time. Within a very short time, this is all going to change. Luke chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master... We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, we would presume at least at this point could well be James and John, their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Suddenly, the disciples' perception, John's perception, these followers' perception of Jesus, of the person of Jesus Christ, is radically transformed. If prior to this moment the thought was, this is an amazing man, perhaps a, a prophet in the mode of Elijah or Moses, like one of those Old Testament prophets that could come and, and do remarkable works to authenticate his ministry, um, who could speak with power, this, this could be like that. If that had been the thought previously, now suddenly they are confronted with the reality that this is who John will say later is the Son of God. There is something unique about him. He is now doing things that, that we would say you know, are mind-blowing. For them, it was beyond their ability to explain that how could he do this. You, you think about what happened here. They are the professional fishermen. They've spent their life doing this. They know when the time is to fish. They know when it's the right time of day. They know the right locations. They've been doing this for years. And, and along comes the son of a carpenter who is known for his teaching, who's now going to direct them at fishing, who is at best a novice at life on the sea, perhaps having been on a boat. But, but who is he to tell us to let down your nets after we've already been doing this all night long. And so somewhat reluctantly, Peter goes, okay, we'll do this because you said so. And they pull the purse strings on the net, and they cannot contain the fish to the point that you can imagine them yelling for help and bringing the other boat and trying to figure out what to do with all of this fish. And, and suddenly, whatever they had seen Jesus do before, now he is capable of either creating or moving swarms of fish in the lake to a particular spot. That is a work of God. That is not something that, that any ordinary man can do. And so now they're beginning to ponder who this is, that this is not some ordinary man. And, and at that moment, it says, not only was there that sense of being stunned, sensing their own sinfulness, his uniqueness and holiness, but he continued to call them and they left everything and they followed him. So turn over to Luke chapter 9. As they travel with Jesus, one of the things that they begin to experience early on in ministry is that not everybody is as enthralled with Jesus as they are which must be, again, something they can't even figure out. I mean, after they've seen the things Jesus has done and, and listened to him, the assumption must be ministry with this guy is going to be incredible. Imagine everything that's going to happen. And when you get to Luke chapter 9, uh, it tells us that a Samaritan village, remember we saw on the map, a Samaritan village would not let Jesus and these others pass through to go from the north to the south. They said, you're going to have to go around. You have to take the long way around because we don't want you coming through. And so immediately there's this sense of, wait a minute, not everybody wants Jesus in their village. How can that be? Jesus speaks to the disciples right after that takes place in Luke chapter 9, after they are turned away and had to go to another village. Luke 9, at the end of the chapter, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, pause there, because this is, again, right after that Samaritan village says, no, you're not coming through our town. So you can imagine one of these disciples at this point saying, Lord, 
I want you to know that I will never do that. I am with you. I am with you all the time, wherever you go. Verse 58, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's a pretty painful, if not uncomfortable, warning even for us. In the fact that these requests, we would say, sound reasonable, and yet Jesus is calling for a commitment here that comes with a cost. The call to commitment to following Jesus Christ comes with a cost. And in fact, Jesus will say it later on in Luke 14 when he says to those who are following him, you must count the cost. You say that you're going to follow me. I am telling you to, that you should know this will not be easy and you should count the cost that is involved. By God's grace, there are many, and it's only by God's grace that we are, we are following him as John demonstrates for us here in this willingness to continue to abandon everything that is familiar because nothing could compare to the joy of following Jesus. And so he does. I, I think it's worth remembering again, John had the family business, he and James. They had no doubt built up time and sweat and blood and had invested in that business. And, and frankly, in worldly terms, that fishing business was his future. I mean, that's, that's where it lied, was, was that doing that, doing what he had spent his life doing. That's what he would carry on. That's how he would provide for his families, uh, his family. And so the cost inherent in this call was one Jesus warned them to count. This will not be all happiness and glory following after me. This will be painful at times. And yet God gave the grace to answer and to follow Turn back to Mark, Mark chapter 3. As Jesus now is, has had a group following him, it is here that he sort of singles out, if you will, the 12, that he now appoints 12 who will be his closest disciples and who will be the ones he sends out to do ministry. So here in Mark chapter 3, as he's selecting them, we see verse 13. He went up on the mountain... And called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, Boanerges, sons of thunder. Let's stop there. Scripture doesn't explain how this nickname came to be, why Jesus took these two brothers, names Simon, Peter, Rock, Rock on whom that the, the, you know, he will go forward with with the church, as he explains later on, but then he gives this Sons of Thunder nickname to Peter, uh, to James, and to John, I should say. Don't know why he used it. We can conjecture a little bit what we know about thunder, is it's fairly sudden, it's loud, it's unpredictable. It, it happens, and it, it gets our attention. Um, it, it, it doesn't work by an ordered sort of plan that, okay, the thunder comes at this point in time, and, and we can sort of 
um, measure all of that. It is, it is sort of loud and explosive. It would not be odd for a couple of guys who were pretty rough and tough fishermen to, to conjecture that personality-wise, maybe they reflected this a little bit. Um, maybe they were a little strong, a little impulsive, a little loud. I think we'll, we'll get some glimpses of that as we go on through. Um, when Rob and I lived in Alaska, we lived in this little town that was all about fishing. Um, when, that, when they processed less than $50 million of fish in a year, it was a down year. Um, so it was just a ton of, of fishing. If you've, if you've ever watched the Deadliest Catch reality show, you get a little sense for some of the personalities and the, the danger, the risk that's involved, and just sort of the hardness that one gets in, in that kind of a, a job. Doing what John did is not for the faint-hearted. Speaking of which, I went on one commercial fishing trip, being on the faint-hearted side of things. Um, back in the day when we lived in Alaska, they would do some of these fishings in 24-hour openings. They would pre-schedule and say, you've got 24 hours on this date to fish for halibut if you have a license to do it. It didn't matter what the weather was that day, what the forecast, they didn't care. They had set that months before, and you were going out on that day and competing with everybody else who had a halibut license, and you would spend 24 hours just going nonstop. You dropped your first line when the horn went off, and you, you kept going until the very end. And it was intense and brutal and competitive, and if your line fell over top of somebody else's line as they laid on the bottom of the sea and they had to pull theirs up, there was a good chance yours was getting cut in the process and, and was going to be left there. And, and it was just brutal work. And here is John dealing with all of the elements of fishing, and, and without the sonar, without the mechanics, without the hydraulics, this is backbreaking work. So I'm not so sure that it's hard to... Uh, uh, conjecture this, that, that the sons of thunder were tough. Uh, they were men who may have been a little crude in their language, a little salty, as, as the, the folks at the sea might say, um, used to giving orders, not the kind of guys who, when it came time to be out on a trip and the weather was kicking up or the fish were biting, to say, okay, guys, let's have a group chat about how we should do this next. <laughs> it was, this is the way it's done. You do this, and the deckhand was told, and you give orders, and that's the way things have to happen. Yes, that's the way their life was. That's the way their work was like. Might have been a little impatient. Listen, and, and this is from Luke chapter 9. I'll just read. Actually, in fact, you can turn there because we're going to read a few more verses in Luke 9. But Luke 9, 49. Here is John talking to Jesus. And he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now think about that. There's John boasting to Jesus. Hey, master, guess what we did? There was a guy who was out there who was casting out demons in your name, and we did our best to put the brakes on that because he ain't one of us. The, the stunning part about it is the guy is apparently having success because it says he's casting out demons. He's not trying to take credit. He's not identified here. He's simply giving the credit to the authority of Jesus. Just as John said in that purpose statement that we read, that by believing you might have life in his name, the, the awareness is that there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this guy is ministering to people in some way in the name of Jesus Christ, and along comes John and says, you ain't one of us, you better stop. I, I'm, I'm a friend of Jesus, and I can tell you to stop. And Jesus responded to that and said, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. 
first of several course corrections for John. Next one also comes up here in Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Jesus. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Okay, this is a good place for us to pause and remember that there but for the grace of God go you and I. We would be doing exactly the same sorts of foolish things if it weren't for God's grace. But that is a remarkably, not only violent response, but a presumptuous response. I mean, don't you love the words, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? So now we've gone to not only being the keeper of the trademark of Jesus' name, to now being the judge of unbelievers. That if this is what they did, little Sodom and Gomorrah routine on them is, is what we should do. And, and again, Jesus rebukes them. One more like this, Mark chapter 10, and, and, and there's a purpose in all of this I we'll get to, but just stay with me as we go to Mark chapter 10. So Jesus here in Mark 10, again, warning the disciples, I am headed to Jerusalem, this is what's in store, this is the, this is the cost you need to count here in Mark chapter 10, and, and it'll be John's response that sort of jumps out at us here. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he takes the twelve aside, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him or beat him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So you've got that. And then verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? What patience at that moment, isn't that? Verse 37, And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Stop there. <laughs> Sons of thunder. Just bold, saying what, you know, comes to their mind, willing to, it, it, and in fact it goes on in this passage and it says the other ten were, were frustrated at these two for doing what they just did because you look at that and go, were they even listening to the part of, I'll be taken, the, the Jews will take me and betray me and hand me to the Gentiles, and I'll be spit on and mocked and beaten and killed. And somehow all they heard in that was, and then I'll rise, and they said, ah, there's something to that, and come along with this marvelous request, and, and here are the sons of thunder sort of pushing their way to the front of the line in kind of this presumptuous way. It should be us. Somebody's going to have to sit next to you, right? So why not be us? So, having said all that, here's, here's what I think is the really amazing part. You read about John in the book of Acts, or you read the Gospel of John, or you read his letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. One of the things that strikes you is this guy has changed. 
this is different from the guy who wanted to kill people and protect the trademark and, and be at the front of the line. This guy is completely different. In fact, one of the abiding themes of the Gospel of John and 1 John that you see over and over again is love. The word love appears in the New Testament 291 times. It's one form or another of the word love, nearly 300 times. You will find 103 of those uses in just the Gospel of John and 1 John. John just overwhelmingly talks about love and records Jesus talking about love. The three Gospels prior, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about love 48 times. John's Gospel uses one form or another of the word 57 times. There's something about love in Jesus' teaching that resonates with John in an amazing way. And that gives us that whole list of verses that we look at. For God so loved the world. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Those are just a few of, of John's recordings of the words of Jesus that, that just emphasize this theme again and again. The Father has loved me. I have loved you. You now go and love others. That's what marks. That's what makes you stand out, is that you love others. It's clear that, that this took root in John's heart, and it began to affect him. You see it in 1 John. You could whole list of statements in 1 John. Here's a few. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. What changed John? How does this... <laughs> rough-and-tumble, son-of-thunder, willing-to-kill opponents of Jesus now come to us and call himself repeatedly the disciple whom Jesus loved. I would submit to you that that's not an arrogant statement on John's part. That is a statement of amazement. That is John saying that, that how in the world I could be loved and Jesus loved me. This, this rough, crusty fisherman who, who said stupid things. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. The, the thing that, that seems to transfix John is that the Savior loved him above all else. After he said dumb things, after he did dumb things, after he didn't know what he was talking about, after he promised to do things that he could never possibly keep up, Jesus Christ still loved him. And that left him in awe. And the thing he wanted you and I to know about him, it's as simple as the children's song, Jesus Loves Me. You remember that scene in Luke chapter 5? And, and they are standing there after Jesus has now moved the fish into their nets, and they are in awe. And the awareness of that moment is the holiness of the Son of God before them, and their sin now feels like it is in a spotlight. And, and, and Peter speaks for the group when he says, just please go away. We, we don't even deserve to be in your presence. And what does Jesus say to him? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, I'm going to use you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. 
And there is Jesus at the moment when their sin it seems to them to be so utterly glaring. There is Jesus loving them and saying, no, 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 you're mine. You're coming with me, and I'm going to use you. To the very end, that John in John 13, 1 says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I would submit to you that that is one of John's greatest commentaries right there on the life of Jesus Christ and the thing you and I most need to hear. And that is that Jesus loved his disciples all throughout their earthly ministry. He continued to love them and to pour into them, and he loved them, John says, to the very end, to the fullest extent possible. When he went to Jerusalem knowing full well what lied ahead so that he could give his life as a ransom on the cross so that he could stand in their place and our place for our sin and take the punishment that we deserve in his death on the cross. That's why John later wrote in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, you want to know what love is? It is God giving his own son to appease God's perfect wrath against sin and pouring his wrath on his undeserving son who never sinned. That's love. When you see the Savior on the cross taking our place. Charles Wesley in 1738, shortly after he was saved by God's grace, wrote a great hymn and in the chorus he wrote this line, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I think it's that amazing love. Not only is it the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of God's Spirit that transformed John, but it is the amazing love of Jesus Christ that took this rough and hardened son of thunder fisherman and changed him into a guy who we now look to as the apostle of love because his books are so full of it. The love that carried Jesus to the cross to love his own is the same love that he holds out to you. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, may I plead with you today that what captured John 2,000 years ago is what he's trying to preach to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the one who came knowing that you and I, we came into life as rebels against God. We want to do things our own way. We're inclined toward selfishness. We're inclined toward sin. We're inclined to disobey God. And God sent his son to come and take a punishment that you and I deserve as his creatures and punished his son to punish our sin in him, in our, his perfect sacrifice, his own son. And that love is what God holds out to you today and calls on you to trust in him. Over the course of this series, as we go through the Gospel of John, we are going to see again and again and again the power and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated for the purpose that we might believe with our whole being that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for demonstrating to us what we would otherwise not ever really understand, that you demonstrated what love is by giving your son as the, the one to appease your just wrath against sin. Father, thank you 
each one here who is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us. For even, even when we rebels against you, that you would lay your life down on the cross to love us to the uttermost. We thank you for that. We thank you for the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the, the grace that is in that. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting alone in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that this day your word would have provoked their hearts to, to see Jesus Christ, not just as some kind man, some good teacher, some historical figure, but as the living Son of God who came and, and demonstrated by his life and his miracles and his teaching that he was sent to be the Savior of those who would come to him by faith and would trust in him. Lord, would you do that work this day in the lives of any who are apart from you? Would you this week encourage us as we go through the challenges that the day brings, that the week brings, would you remind us again and again that you love us dearly? May we revel in the love of Christ as we go through this week. May, may people who encounter us have the experience that Jesus told his disciples about, that they will, they will see something unique about you. Not in necessarily the precision of your theology or the fact that you go to church on Sunday. What they will see that is really astounding and unique is how you love. Lord, may we live that out this week by your grace and the working of your spirit through us. Knowing that we are loved by you, may we love others. May we love the brethren. May we love this world around us that desperately needs to know Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.